Hey guys, thank you for joining us today on Talking Scripture. Hopefully you've heard that we are now on podcasting apps. You can find Talking Scripture on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Can you take a minute and just rate and subscribe to our podcast? That will go a long way in helping people find us. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to talk about Jacob. We're going to do Jacob 5 through 7, Allegory of the Olive Tree. Olive Trees and Antichrist today, Mike. Yep, that's what we're doing. So I'm going to start off talking a little bit about the question that precedes the allegory, and then I'm going to give a brief sketch of what's happening in Jacob 5. And then I'm really then we're going to have Bryce talk about another way to read the allegory on a personal level and then we'll get a little bit more in depth into the historical narrative into the way that it's it's looked at a little bit more in depth but what I really want to do is get to uh Bryce's take on um you know making this personal. So that that's kind of where where it's going to play out and then we'll get to uh Sherem and the narrative there. We ought to mention briefly, at least Zenus, in passing, Mike. This prophet, disappeared from our current Old Testament, appears to have been one of the most influential prophets in the Old Testament. I think someday the world is going to realize that the prophet Zenus was a a prophet among prophets. He is quoted heavily in the Book of Mormon. And clearly, when you read things like this allegory, this man knew his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love how often the Book of Mormon quote the prophets quote Zenos, and there's a little hint. Nephi and Isaiah use phrases that Nephi doesn't necessarily quote from Isaiah, and I wonder if both of them got those phrases from the prophet Zenos, like phrases like you know he'll raise he'll rise with healing in his wings or calves in the stall, and they both seem to be quoting some other great prophet. And I wonder if it's the prophet Zenos. Um, just a marvelous contribution. We really ought to pause and say, this man, this chapter taken from the brass plates and yet has disappeared from our current Old Testament is phenomenal insight. Yeah. Zenos was a big deal. Yeah. So for, for today, uh, the first question right there is Jacob 4. Uh, Jacob 4, verse 17 and 18. Uh, well, we got to do 16. So Jacob 4, 16, 17, and 18, uh, quoting Psalm 118, Behold, according to the scriptures, this stone shall become the great, the last, and the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. And now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it, that it may become the head of their corner? Behold, my beloved brethren, I will unfold this mystery unto you if I do not by any means get shaken from my firmness in the spirit and stumble because of my over-anxiety for you. So we just read Jacob 4, 16 through 18. The question on the table that Jacob is trying to address is that these, meaning the Jews, after having rejected Christ, how can Christ ever become their Messiah? How can Christ ever become the Messiah or a king of a people that have crucified him, that have rejected him. That's one level. Another level of of this question that I think is a lot more relevant to our listeners would be, how can I ever uh, achieve a state of grace when I mess up? Will God ever love me again? Will he love me? Will Will he forgive me? And in tender, and Jacob's so tender here, in tender tones, um, Jacob is going to use Zenus's allegory, and he's going to demonstrate for us. Zenus is really going to be demonstrating for us how tender the Messiah is, how tender Yahweh is to his people, and how he reclaims them. And so, th- there's nothing like this in Scripture. There's nothing. There's a couple um, 
vineyard type stories. You've got the first seven verses of Isaiah 5. You've got Romans 11, but they're not doing what Zenos is doing. In the Isaiah section, the, the Lord in, in Isaiah 5, he's wrecking the vineyard. The, you know, these guys are apostate. We're just going to blow it up. And in the Romans narrative in Romans 11, Paul isn't really doing what Zenos is doing. He's saying, hey, we've got these wild branches. We've got these tame branches. And the wild are the Gentiles, and the tame are the Jews, and the Gentiles are going to save the tree. In my estimation, Zenos isn't doing either of these things. But I think Isaiah, like Bryce has said, Isaiah and Paul are drawing from this old tradition. They're drawing from something that's older. Uh, my take is Zenos was a big deal, and he his stuff echoes throughout the ancient Near East. And so here it is, and we don't have we don't know who he is. Um, I think it was Hugh Nibley. You know, said, well, maybe it's Zenas, and there's this guy named Zenas, and I'll post some of this in the show notes. Uh, there's a lot of scholarship out there that says, well, maybe not. That's one of the things that scholarship does is it beats up both sides, and I always walk away going, well, now I didn't, now I know nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's speculation as to who he may be, but I certainly don't know. So that being said, that's the question. Overview, really brief. Uh, basically, like five time periods. Um, and we'll get more in depth in this, but essentially there's the first time period is basically the fourth verse to verse 14. And that's the time period of, how would you describe this, Bryce? Old Testament scattering yeah. period. Yeah, we're seventh like century. When the, ten, the 10 tribes are taken away, the Babylonian captivity. It's kind of Old Testament scattering period because Israel is growing wicked. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So you've got 721 BC. I just read this recently uh, in 2 Kings, in the 2 Kings narrative of the scattering, right around, you know, chapter 18, 19, 20 in there, 721. Time, I call this time period A, the scattering. The second time period is 15 through 28, and 15 through 28 is much time has passed. If you look in verse 15, you know, a long time has passed, and there's what's happened. And we have some good and some evil, and we have some growth going on. The scattering worked. Yeah, and we'll talk about it. This is New Testament times and Book of Mormon times, and, you know, sending them to America really did work, and and pulling the ten tribes out really did work. This is a kind of a, a period of growth. Yeah. And, and after that time period, 29 through 49, I actually had take my students through it and have them mark off these verses. Verse 29 says, a long time had passed away, and the Lord of the vineyard said, let us go down. And then you get to the end of verse 30, and it says, all sorts of fruit did cumber the tree. I'm going to spend some time talking about the end of verse 30, but that is uh, post-Jesus. After Jesus comes, there's all sorts of fruit and there's problems, and so we've got to fix it. It's apostasy. Yep. And then 50 through 73 is another time period. That's the time period of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to gather Israel. And then finally, time period E, or the fifth time period, is verse 74. And verse 74 to 77, there's a lot of good things happening. I like to look at this as millennial. This is a great chapter to get an overview of how God is working with his children and he's gathering them. He's bringing them home. And I kind of think this is also, maybe this is like Zenos. What he saw um, was similar to what John saw. And listen to our Revelation podcast where we talk about John sees this, Nephi sees this. And so maybe this is Zenos's take, and he's going to use a tree and grafting and all the stuff associated with horticulture, stuff that I have no experience with. I've never grown an olive tree. And think about this, you guys. 
Joseph hasn't either. Joseph Smith, a 23-year-old man in upstate New York, um, from my estimation, from what I know, has never even seen an olive tree. Like that is, it's just mind blowing because the stuff in here about how to grow trees, I don't think anybody in upstate New York is using the ways they describe growing olive trees. And so that's big picture. It's time periods. It's Yahweh working with his people. And the two questions on the table, will God love me if I mess up? And how can this person be a king of a people that have rejected him? And so what I want to do is have Bryce talk about, okay, how can we make this personal? How can we look at this? and say, so what? How does it relate to me? So Bryce, what do you do? If you'll turn to verse three, this is Jacob chapter five, verse three, there's two ways to interpret the word thee. And Enos start, or Zena starts out, I will liken thee, O house of Israel, to a tame olive tree. Well, the traditional approach is I will liken thee, meaning all of you. I will liken the whole house of Israel to an olive tree, and then we tell that tree's story. And we're going to do that. We're going to do that and show you the different time periods that the house of Israel went through. But the other way to read it, the way we often don't read Jacob chapter 5 is, I will liken thee, and that's you individually. I will liken you to an individual olive tree. And you need to understand how much God wants to save you and what he's willing to do to save you. So this is the story of God in our individual lives. So notice at the end of verse 3, the tree begins to decay. Quite often, if you let trees go where they, the direction they want to go, they don't reproduce. They don't bring forth fruit. They bring forth growth. They want to get bigger and stronger and yet not reproduce and have seed and have fruit and bring forth fruit. And so here's a tree that's kind of going to decay. It's just not growing like you and I often do. We often grow the wrong ways or in the wrong means, and we don't bring forth the fruit that we really should bring forth. So in verse four, you get round one of pruning. Round one, first he prunes, he digs about, and he nourishes. Now, those are very gentle. He prunes, he digs about, and he nourishes. And verse 6, it does help a little bit. It does somewhat help. But verse at the end of verse 6, the main part began to perish. Now, I want you to count how many times. Notice in verse 7. I'll do this slow if you want to mark your scriptures. I want to count how many times he says, it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. So the first one is in verse 7. It grieveth me that I should lose this tree. In the middle of verse 11, it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. Last part of verse 13, it grieveth me that I should lose this tree, the, the tree and the fruit thereof. Then we jump down a little bit to 32. So from 13 down to 32, it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. We're now into the apostasy period, but he keeps saying it. Verse 46, the last sentence of verse six, 46, it grieveth me that I should lose them. Towards the end of 47, it grieveth me that I should hewn down all the trees of my vineyard. 51, it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. And then we jump down to 66, it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. You have to see throughout everything we're going to talk about, a loving God who is not going to lose you. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to save you. So at the end of verse six, 
when the pruning didn't work, when the round one pruning didn't work, when the gentle pruning that comes from the Lord doesn't work, now because he's not going to lose us, it begins to hurt a little bit. So look at verse 7. Give me the central word in verse 7 that represents what God is going to do in our life. Because he loves us, because he's not going to lose the tree, he will pluck. Now, the act of plucking is taking something in my life, or maybe someone in my life, something that I love, someone that I love, and you yank it out of my life. And every one of us have been plucked. Every one of us have lost something or someone, and we've been plucked. And God came into our life, and he plucked us, and it hurt us. Next, look at verse 9. What does God do in verse 9? Verse 7, he plucks. Verse 9, he grafts. So what is the act of grafting? We're putting something in. Take something foreign, something I thought I'd never have to deal with, something like cancer, and you graft it into my life. By the way, for our listeners, you know, not all of us grow up around olive trees. The grafting is a way of taking a cutting or a small branch, a very tender one, cutting it and then putting it into another tree. We'll post some pictures of this in the show notes, but I I don't think Joseph has experience in grafting olive trees. But anyway, back to this idea, we're pulling stuff out, we're we're putting stuff in. We're plucking things from our lives, we're grafting things into our lives. How many of you ever thought you'd have to deal with cancer? Or maybe there's a person or something that's been grafted into your life that you never, a foreign object that you never thought you'd have to deal with. Sometimes people are grafted in. Like Paul talks about, I had a thorn a in the flesh. A thorn in his flesh that was stuck into his life. And he didn't he like to it. deal with, right. And then verse 13, what's the third one? So he plucks in verse 7, he grafts in verse 9, and then in verse 13, he places. He places in the nithermost part. Quite often, God places us somewhere we never anticipated growing. He places us in an environment He changes our school. He changes our work. We end up moving to a place we never thought we'd have to ever grow. He plucks, he grafts, and he places. Now that seems so harsh and cruel to us. So verse 15, a long time passes. Now let's go back and see what happened. Let's go back and see the result of the plucking, the grafting, and the placing. Let's start with the tree, the tree that got plucked and grafted. Verse 17, what's happening? Dad gummit, what's happening? The tree in which the olive tree, the wild olive branches had been grafted, the tree that got plucked is beginning to bear fruit. Meaning it worked. It worked. As painful as the plucking and grafting were, it worked. And the tree is bringing forth good fruit. And then there's this beautiful sentence in verse 18. And with all my soul, I testify that someday after the plucking and the grafting and the placing, you will say, or he will say, right after the word now in verse 18, if we had not grafted in these branches, the tree thereof would have perished. Had that painful episode not occurred in my life, I may very well have perished. I probably would have perished. The Lord knew what he was doing. The plucking, the grafting, he knew what he was doing. Had we not done this, 
the tree would have perished. Now let's go check out the nethermost part. Let's go to the one that was placed. Verse 19, come, let us go to the nethermost part of the vineyard. In verse 20, darn it again, what's happening? It's bearing much fruit. In other words, this was the exact environment that that tree needed in order to grow. He had yanked it out. He had plucked it out of the tree. He placed it in a horrible foreign place where no one ever dreamed of growing, and out, and now it's, it's bearing much fruit. And what verse is that again? That right? was verse 20. Right in the middle of verse 20, it, it had brought forth much fruit. It worked. So then in verse 21, the servant, who's kind of helping the Lord, looking around. You can just picture him looking around in the nethermost place and saying, what? What? why here? And so the servant kind of questions the master, as we often do. How many times after a plucking or a grafting or a placing do we say, like 21, how camest thou? Why? Why did you do this? Why the cancer? Why did that little girl die? Why the car accident? Why the loss of the job? Why, Lord? And then comes five of my most favorite words that God ever utters. I know it's not the whole sentence. I'm just going to talk about the first five words out of the Savior's mouth in verse 22. He says, Counsel me not. I knew. He knows. He absolutely knows what he's doing. And when we get plucked, when we get grafted, when someone we love is yanked out of our life or some opportunity is taken away, I had students who were injured and they lost their football career and they never ever would return and play football. And they just all of a sudden were plucked and they were just struggling with the plucking. I've seen people lose loved ones, just have them plucked right out of their life. I've seen people dealing with diseases and opportunities they never thought would be, would be grafted in. And we all struggle with these. And sometimes we say, why, Lord? Why? And the answer, I knew. Counsel me not, I knew. Look at the growth that has come because of what he did. Counsel me not. And then the end of verse 22, thou beholdest that it hath brought forth much fruit. Someday, hopefully, we live long enough to look back and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for plucking me. Thank you for grafting me. Thank you for knowing what I needed. That reminds me, you know, about being cut down. Yeah, where uh, be Brown in the current bush. such a great talk where he says, "Thank you for thank cutting you, me down. Mr. Gardner, for cutting me down, for loving me enough to hurt me." And Bryce, I don't think any of us escape this. No, I remember the first time I had a huge disappointment in my life, and I had a man I look up to gave me that talk, and I remember feeling the spirit, and I remember going, "I still hate it. I was still mad. I was angry at God, but I was starting to understand." And can I just say, as I've gotten to know Mike, as Mike has become so dear to my life, I now say to God, thank you for cutting him down, because whatever you needed to do to bring him to where he is, to the influence he's having in my life, your life, and the lives of his students, I think we can all acknowledge that that painful experience that Mike went through 
has now brought forth tremendous fruit. And that's the truth in all of our lives. But it hurts. It does hurt. <laughs> it's awful. The plucking, the grafting, the placing. But there's that sweet moment where we say, he knew. One last thought on this before we go back to Mike and we do kind of a, a historical version of this. There's just one last thought. If you'll turn to the apostasy period, this is where the whole tree goes bad. This is chapter verses 29 through 49. The whole tree has gone bad. This is Israel in the apostasy, and the whole tree has gone bad. And the Lord asks an intriguing question in verse 41. He says, what could I have done more for my vineyard? And then he answers that question down in verse 47. What could I have done more for my vineyard? Have I slackened my hand? Have I not nourished it? Nay, I have nourished it. I have digged about it, and I have pruned it, and I have dunged it, and I have stretched forth my hand. In other words, there's nothing that he didn't do that would have blessed the vineyard. Now, talking about your own plucking and your own grafting and your own placing, may I suggest to you that there is nothing, there is no other life that would have been better for you than the life he gave you. Your life is your best chance at salvation. If some other blessing, if some other route, if some other way had been better for you, he would have done it. In answer to the question, what more could I have done in that individual life to get them to the celestial kingdom? The answer is nothing. Sometimes we look around and say, if only I had been given that life or that life, then I would have more easily made it to the celestial kingdom. And the answer is no, your life was your best chance at salvation. All of the plucking, all of the grafting, all of the challenges that we've gone through are our best chance at salvation. We need to accept his wisdom and where he put me in this plan, where he put me on earth, and the challenges, the plucking, the grafting, and the placing are my best opportunity to be saved. Someday, with all my soul, I testify someday that you will say, he knew. He knew what he was doing. Um, Marvin J. Ashton tells a marvelous story about a, a blind girl traveling on a train with her father, and the, he's holding the girl on his lap. And after a while, a friend sitting next to the f father says, let me hold her for a while and give you a little bit of a break. So he gives his friend his daughter. And then after a while, he turns to his daughter and he says, do you know who's holding you? And the daughter says, no, but you do. And then Elder Ashton makes the comment, wouldn't it be wonderful if when the trial, tragedy, and heartbreak come into our lives and the spirit whispers, do you know why this has happened to you? We could have the peace of mind to say no, but you do. He knows. He knows when and where and how to pluck. He knows how to graft. He knows when to graft. He knows what to graft. He knows where to place us. And someday we will see the fruit that his grafting, plucking, and placing brings. And we will say, thank you, Mr. Gardner, for cutting me down, for loving me enough to hurt me. That's kind of the personal way of looking at this allegory. I hope that blesses you. I think there's a lot of people who are dealing with a plucking or a grafting or a placing that need the reassurance that God is in charge and he knows what he's doing and that someday when we are laden with fruit, we will have the wisdom to say he knew what he was doing. Counsel me not, I knew. 
All right, Mike, let's, go, let's, let's now take a look at this as a historical lesson. This validates the restoration. We really do need to look at this in big picture and say the whole house of Israel because it validates the story of the restoration. So, Mike, walk us through the history yeah. of the house of Israel. Hey, Mike's such an expert on history. Let's have Mike walk us through the history of the house of Israel as taught in this allegory and some of the insights that we gain in what the Lord's doing it historically, and then we'll get to Sherem, the Antichrist. That's really good, Bryce. I really like how you make it personal, and I love how you talk about – I don't even know how many times there were where the Lord says, it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. I really think the Book of Mormon restores our understanding of who God is and his care. And the whole point of this allegory isn't the trees as much as it's the, the master behind it, the love, the care, the concern that he has. And that's the answer to Jacob's question. Will God ever love me? Well, you've got to see how much he loves you, how much he's willing to do to save you. Now, you answer your own question. Does God still love you? And that's the whole point of this parable is to see the kindness of the master of the vineyard. His absolute dedication to helping it grow. So good. Well, he doesn't want to lose the tree. So I'm going to go through a little bit of this historically. Um, in the first time period in verses 4 through 14, I call this time period A, where it says, it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. And the Lord says, you know, we're going to move some people. We're going to move some people around. Um, you know, you look in verse 13, I'm going to place him in the nethermost part. Um, notice verse 8, it says, Behold, saith the Lord, I will take away many of these young and tender branches, and I will graft them whithersoever I will, and it mattereth not. If it so be that the root of this tree will perish, that I may preserve the fruit unto myself, wherefore I will take these young and tender branches, and I will graft them whithersoever I will. And like Bryce says, we're placing them. Well, what's happening here? In the King's narrative, in 2 Kings, there's all kinds of apostasy described here in the text, and it's, it's complicated, but essentially what the authors are trying to show is why Israel was scattered. So, for example, in 2 Kings 17, we read about Israel being scattered and how, you know, the, the kingdom's rent. Verse 23 uh, says that the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he said by all his servants, the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land unto Assyria unto this day. Clearly, they're scattered. In Jacob 5, we read this. We read that they, they're placed in all these different places, in the nethermost part in verse 13, and it grieves the Lord that this should happen. I like the phrase for tender, and the way I approach this is there are so many prophets in the north that are approaching the Israelites, and they're just so tender. One of my favorites is Hosea, and the whole image of Hosea and his message is God and his feeling after the Israelites, even though, and the Israelites are personified as this horrible woman that's adulterous, and it's just beautiful. And in the, in the text of Hosea, I read Jacob 5, 4 through 14, this tenderness. In the 15th through 28th verses, we have this scattering that's taken place. And after it's taken place, this time period is roughly from the scattering of Israel in 721 to about 90 BC. And if we, if we were putting time periods out there. So verse 15 says a long time passed away, but it's bearing fruit, like Bryce said in the 17th verse. And the 21st verse, the poorest spot does really well. What's happening here? Um, the good spot of ground 
in verse 25 is also doing well. And so overall, it's the fruit is doing well. This is, in my estimation, a lot of this is the Nephites are doing well. Um, they're coming to Christ. They're receiving Jesus. But what's interesting is this is Zenos in the Old Testament, and he predicted that that tree that was taken to the nethermost part would split in two. And in verse 25, it says, only a part of the tree hath brought forth tame fart tame fruit, the other part of the tree hath brought forth wild fruit. He actually predicts that the, the, the Lehites would go to America and you'd have one righteous branch and one wicked branch. That was a gutsy prophecy from Zenos' day, and yet it shows you that the Lord really is in charge of this. He actually nails the fact that the Nephites and the Lamanites would split into two groups. Yeah, yeah. so that's happening. So that's, that's the kind of the second section um, or time period B. Time period C is from the time of Jesus all the way until, you know, the the enlightenment and prior to the restoration. And I really want to talk about some of these things because I think we can see a lot of this more historically. So if you look in verse 30, it says, all sorts of fruit did cumber the tree. And I remember when I first studied this verse, I looked at it like, oh, there's all these different forms of Christianity. And yes, that's true. In Joseph's day, there were so many different forms. But right out of the gate, right after Jesus leaves, there are so many forms of Christianity. And there really isn't orthodoxy right at the beginning. Um, This author, Daniel Boyarin, said this. He said, there is no single point at which one may draw a line with apostasy on one side and doctrinal purity on the other. Even in the very earliest days, the myriad of questions surrounding how one might embrace the gospel reveals that there was no single orthodoxy. The differences of opinion between Paul and the Jerusalem church established that fact. When Jesus leaves and the apostles are killed, there are so many Christianities that rise up really early before what historians call orthodoxy. And that is something that a lot of us don't really think about or realize, but people didn't know how to follow Jesus. They felt the spirit when they heard the the words. Many of them weren't literate, and so a lot of this stuff was oral. A lot of the the portrayals of Jesus were probably demonstrated, Bryce, in plays. Like, for example, uh, Julie Smith's done a lot of work with this, that the book of Mark was probably a play. And that's how people experienced Jesus. It wasn't like there were a lot of literate people in the first century, but they would hear these stories. And so how to follow Jesus was a big question. So I'm going to briefly go into this. Historically, a a group of people that followed Jesus that believed you had to be Jewish to follow Jesus, uh, historians call the Ebionites. And a lot of them think that, that this comes from James, the brother of Jesus. He was a devout follower of the law. The Ebionites were wrong in some respects because they rejected the virgin birth, but they saw Jesus as Messiah because he followed the law. Um, They reject Paul, obviously, for obvious reasons, because Paul's like, you don't need to follow the law. And so these Ebionites looked at Jesus as Messiah, but like I said, they didn't really see him as coming from the heavens or coming from a virgin, but they looked at him as a devout follower of the law. And the way you get saved was to be Jewish got to be Jewish. And they loved the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Why? Well, if you read it in the Gospel of Matthew, there's a lot of things about following the law. You got to be super followers of the law. On the other end of the spectrum, there were a group of Christians that were called antinomians. And that's just a fancy way of saying anti-law. These were Christians that said, you don't need to follow the law to follow Jesus. Uh, So what did they do? Well, they taught all kinds of things. Uh, Some of them were Gnostics, 
Uh, some of them were followers of Paul, but to the Ebionites, the antinomians were like the enemy. And so these two groups kind of castigated each other and threw aspersions at each other. And they didn't believe the antinomians, that is, they didn't believe they had to follow all the laws of Torah, like the Ebionites. And not to be outdone, there were a group of Christians called the Docetists. And these were people that were steeped in Greek philosophy. These were Christians in the first couple centuries that looked at Jesus was so divine that he didn't even take upon himself a body. That's where we get the word docetus. It comes from the word dokio, which means to seem. Jesus only seemed to take upon himself a body. And these group of Christians taught that the crucifixion didn't really happen in a fleshly sense. Some of them taught this. Some of them taught this that, or some of them taught that Jesus seemed to suffer, but he didn't, or that the divine essence of Christ came into Jesus at the baptism or at the birth and then left when Jesus was crucified. And so the man Jesus was crucified, but the Christ, the divine essence left Jesus. I know this may seem complicated uh, to some people, but this is what early Christians were teaching. And these teachings were fought against in the gospels, uh, or specifically they were fought against in the writings of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And we'll post some of these in the show notes where John specifically targets them and says, no, Jesus did, was born in the flesh, and he was a person that actually experienced mortality. A couple others, there were a group of people called adoptionists, so many different Christianities, all sorts of fruit. The adoptionists believed essentially that Jesus was mortal, born of mortal parents, but that he became adopted as God's son. And this is something that's so foreign to us as Latter-day Saints. But the belief was this, essentially, that a king became a son of God when he was a king. And so in Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 and in Rome, they're doing this. They're calling the king God's son because he has been adopted to represent him. And so to the adoptionist mind, Jesus was a mortal, born of mortal parents, but he was adopted. One author notes this. He says, Jesus may be regarded as uniquely inspired human person, but far transcending the Old Testament prophets, his anointing by the Spirit, whether at his baptism by John or at the moment of conception, created his sonship which thus falls in the same class with a Christian's adoptive sonship given at baptism. So, for example, when we're baptized, we become sons of Christ. This idea is a historian's abstraction, a line of thought never developed or presented complete by any one theologian. Probably no Christian theologian, even those against whom the charge is leveled, taught its distinctive feature that Christ is a mere man by nature. That's Everett Ferguson. But essentially, what that's teaching is that Pinning down the adoptionist on one theology is too slippery. It's like trying to catch a grease pig. There's so many different theologies out there. So what it meant to be an adoptionist is, even today, difficult to pin down. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that there are just so many Christianities, it's no wonder the apostasy happened. We don't have any kind of centralized authority. We don't have any prophets. And it's just literally a tree. It's just sprouting fruit everywhere. A couple more, Marcionites. These were second century Christians, and Marcion was basically a guy that lived around 140, and he was like, I can't reconcile this Jesus with the Old Testament God. They can't be the same guy. The God in Joshua that says, kill them all, can't be Jesus. And so he kind of determined that the Old Testament God was a bad God. He called him the Demiurge, and Jesus was the good God. 
and the bad God went rogue and creation's bad. We've got to get out of this created order. We've got to follow Jesus. And so to him, he basically said the Old Testament, just throw it in the garbage. Don't need it. But what you do need is you need the gospel of Luke and you need some of the writings of Paul. He didn't use the pastorals. We don't know why. Maybe, um, you know, Titus, Titus, and Timothy, maybe they didn't exist or maybe he just didn't know about them. So he took 10 of Paul's letters and the book of Luke and anything in there that talked about the Old Testament God, he's like, well, we've got to scrub that out. And he was the first guy to canonize scripture. It was 140. And a lot of historians look at this and they say, because Marcion canonized scripture, that they said, we've got to canonize scripture. We've got to come up with a list. If this guy's going to take away, if he's going to hijack Christianity, the idea of canonization was a counter movement against Marcion. It's interesting to me that this idea of a Bible the idea that we have it came out of the apostasy. It's just this, it, there's so much to unpack it, but it's fascinating. And then last, well, a couple more. Um, the Gnostics. The Gnostics were also people that believed in this higher truth. And there's so many of these, of their teachings that I see in Christianity today and that I see even in our faith. But the Gnostics believed that there's this higher knowledge, that Jesus had a select group that had access to higher truth. And they're kind of a mix, kind of a syncretic syncretic mix of Christianity, mystery cults, Greek philosophy, and Judaism. And they basically regarded themselves as Christians, these Gnostics did, but they were like, well, we're better than you because we have the secret knowledge. And some of them pushed back against the resurrection. And Elaine Pagels writes about this, the Orthodox followers that believed in the resurrection and the Gnostics kind of fought back and forth. And the Gnostics said, well, I've experienced Jesus in vision. And the Orthodox follower says, well, I've experienced Jesus through the testimony of the resurrection. And both of these groups had tension. The followers of those that believed in the resurrection said, well, the apostles hold the tradition. They saw the risen Jesus. They're the holders of orthodoxy. And we're going to follow their witness. And the Gnostics said, you can experience Jesus without seeing a physical, resurrec- a physical resurrection. And maybe Jesus wasn't physically resurrected. And this is a bone of contention. And they go back and forth. And the Gnostics have a whole corpus of literature that we've discovered. And a lot of it, frankly, is pretty interesting. And a lot of it talks about uh, mysteries and higher teaching, and a lot of it is associated with the temple. And some of it, frankly, I disagree with. But these two groups go back and forth um, in early Christianity. Uh, another guy, but his name was Serinthius, and he basically taught that the Old Testament God was a bad guy. And he's kind of a mixed bag of a lot of things. He had a Docetic Christology. In other words, he taught that Jesus only seemed to be subject to mortality. He believed that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism and left him at his death. And from the sources at the time, Serinthius seems docetic, but he's also adoptionist. It's kind of complicated. But because of his teachings, he's right around 88 AD and he's teaching this stuff. If you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John against the backdrop of these arguments, you see that Whoever wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, if it was the Apostle John, he's tackling head-on these apostate teachings. And my testimony is that the New Testament is a snapshot into all sorts of fruit did cumber the tree. There's all these different teachings, and the authors of these documents are hammering them, and they're trying to teach orthodoxy. And yet, the apostasy happens. 
It takes like three centuries for the early bishops to kind of come up with an orthodox teaching about Jesus. And out of that comes Augustine. And then a thousand years later, the Reformation. We could do multiple podcasts on this, but I, I just want to emphasize that there was no single orthodoxy in the first couple centuries. When Jesus dies and the apostles are killed, it's just a mixed bag, all sorts of fruit. And I love that image of a tree, Bryce, it's going nuts and there's fruit all over the place and it's all nasty. It's all got, it looks like fruit, but it's a mess. Okay. And then enter the Latter-day Saints to clean it up. Yeah. So that's the next time period, right? The next time period is uh, the restoration of the gospel. And Joseph comes, and this is 50 through 73, time period D, and 50 through 73. I love where it says in verse 50, spared a little bit longer, and we're going to go in verse 61. We're going to call servants. And I always like to look at the students and say, oh, by the way, that's you. And verse 70, at the end, there were few. So what do they do? They go and labor. And I love verse 73, where it says at the very end um, that the top and the root, everything is equal according to its strength. That's a big deal to the Book of Mormon authors, that we have this, what I call the egalitarian ideal, that we have this equality. And it's preserved at the end of verse 74, and it's most precious, and that's 74 through 77, the millennium, the final time where everything is going to be put back. And so that's big picture historical. To wrap it up, Jesus loves the tree. He loves the fruit and all sorts of fruit cumber the tree when there's not some kind of guidance. And so Jesus is the gardener, uh, the Lord and the master of the vineyard. You know, we, there's, we'll post this in the show notes, a great way to kind of look at some of these symbols in one respect. Um, the master could be the father and the servant can be the Lord. In another respect, the master can be you know, Jesus and the servants could be the prophets and the servants. There's so many ways to look at it, but the big picture is God's in charge. He's going to fix it. He's going to bring us home. Okay. Should we do Jacob six? Uh, I'll be wise. What can I say more? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Jacob seven. Jacob seven. We now run into our first antichrist. And this now becomes to me, one of the great testimonies of the book of Mormon, that it was written for our day, because this is what we're dealing with. We are dealing with antichrists, anti-Mormons, people who have turned against the truth and are fighting against it. And every one of us has someone in our family, someone we love, someone we care about, who was once a faithful member of the church, has turned against it and now fights against the church and tries to pull people away. Uh, Some of you have parents and children and siblings that are doing that, and they're trying to pull your children away, and they're trying to pull other people away. Um, Some of the students that I teach will tell me that it's a dad or a mom or a, a brother or a mission companion, people who once were faithful and are now fighting against it. They are very much like the Sherams and the Korah horse. So what we're going to do is we're going to just group them all together and just give everyone, here's what to look for. Here's what antichrists do, and here's how to recognize what they're doing. See their methods, and then what are the antidotes? How do we combat the influence of an antichrist? So if you're interested, you may want to find Jacob 7, Sherem is an antichrist. Alma 1, Nehor is described as an antichrist. Alma 30, Korahor 
is the great Antichrist. And then in verse 31 and 30, or chapter 31 and 32 of Alma, we are introduced to an Antichrist that we only know through his teachings and his people, and that's Zoram. Not Zoram that was Laban's servant, but Zoram as in the Zoramites in the book of Alma. The Zoramites are clearly an Antichrist people, and they teach Antichrist doctrine. So those are kind of the four Antichrists in the Book of Mormon. We have Sherem, Jacob 7, Nehor, Alma 1, Korahor, Alma 30, and then Zoram, Alma 31 and 32. Now, let me just point out that there's three things that all Antichrists have in common, and you're going to find these today in the Antichrist, the anti-Mormons that you deal with. So let me just point out, number one and number two, first of all, Antichrist will quite often use the F word. And what I mean by that, you'll see in Alma chapter 30. So let's see, I'm going to read a description of Korahor's teachings to the people, and you see if you can recognize the F word. And this is the concept, this concept is very common today, that everyone's going to use this F word against the church. So starting in verse 23, ready? Actually, let's go to start in 13. See if you can find the F word. Here we go. Ready? Alma 30, 13. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and vain hope. What verse you in, Bryce? 13. Alma 30, 13. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and vain hope. Why do you yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Verse 14, he calls them foolish traditions. Verse 16, this is a result of your frenzied mind, the derangement of your minds. Going down to verse 23, he says, foolish traditions, foolish ordinances and performances to keep us in ignorant. Verse 27, foolish traditions. 28, speaking of prophets, their dreams, their traditions and their dreams and their whims and their visions and their pretended mysteries. In other words, one very common technique of Antichrist is they want you to feel foolish. There's the F word. Mormons are fools. And it's so interesting. They'll just throw things that we believe in an attempt to make us feel foolish. I watched a post carry out on on social media about Mormons' magic underwear, how Mormons believe in magic underwear. That's just silly. Mormons are fools for believing in magic underwear. Or they'll talk about, well, Joseph put his head in a hat to translate the Book of Mormon, which is very ironic because most of them don't think Joseph Smith, they'll disagree that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, but they'll claim that he put his head in a hat to translate it, as if to say, we just want to make you feel foolish. If you, if you believe that Joseph put his head in a hat to translate the Book of Mormon, then you're a fool. Or I remember a com- I went to a conference once, a general conference, and someone had a big sign that said, Mormons believe that Jesus and Satan are brothers. And yet that's a very viable thing in, in, in folklore, even in superhero movies, to have brothers at odds with each other. But they were throwing it out there to say, look how foolish the Mormons are. They're not analyzing the argument. They're just basically saying, we want to make you look stupid. We want to make you look stupid. It's kind of like the the magic underwear. And I just love this when I see this in social media. Someone says, well, you guys think you, you, know, you wear magic underwear. And then I love when someone chimes in and says, oh, okay, you're going to do that. We're going to attack religious belief. Okay, now do Jews. Now do Muslims. Now do Catholics. Now do the Church of England. 
Every single religious tradition has sacred vestments. They all do it. And so really what they're doing is, in my opinion, exposing incredible ignorance, but their point is not even about what they're saying. Their point is just to try to incite you to think that they're idiots. Right, because the goal here is if you feel foolish, you'll walk away. You'll walk away in proof that you're not a fool. Like, now, like, like the head and the hat thing. They're, exactly. they're not even engaging the argument, the, the translation. They just want you to feel stupid. Right. Exactly. It, there's no brain technique. There's no brain engagement. Is watch out for the, you're a fool. Now go back to those same verses in Alma 30. Go back to verse 13 and see if you can find the other common argument. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and vain hope. Why do you yoke yourselves? And then one common thing you'll find among all these antichrists is verse 18, they lift up their heads. In Alma chapter 1, Nehor taught that all men should lift up their heads. In other words, what we hear a lot is that Mormons are bound down. Mormons are restricted. Notice verse 29, bind themselves down, usurp power and authority not lift up their heads, brought down, verse 24, they are in bondage. And we hear this a lot. You stupid Mormons, you just follow your prophet blindly. You're stupid followers. You're bound down and you're foolish. That's their argument. That you're restricted, that you can't think for yourselves. And so they're trying to make us feel foolish and bound so that we rise up and leave the church. But it's a, it's a very common mistake. It's a common technique is to make us feel like we are bound down, yoked, that the brethren have some secret knowledge that they're not telling us, that they're controlling us. And the reality is it's a, it's, it's their facade. It's how they approach you. They're trying to get you off the path by making you feel foolish or restricted bound down, that you can't think for yourselves, that you're just sheep that follow the prophet. So watch for those two techniques. Watch for those who claim that we're bound down and watch for those that claim that that we're foolish. Now, the third common thing, I want to go back to Jacob chapter 7 because he uses an interesting phrase in verse 2 that they try and overthrow the doctrine of Christ. I think a, a, a synonym for overthrow is twist. In other words, Antichrist will always twist true doctrine. It's always truth with a twist. So, for example, Sherem's doctrine in verse 7 is that, yes, we need saving, but it's the law of Moses that will save us, not Jesus. So something else will save you. So there's a truth that we need saving, but there's a twist. Notice in Alma chapter 1 with Nehor, Nehor's doctrine is that everyone's going to be saved. Now, is that true? Yes, in some sense, that's true. Everyone's going to be resurrected, and practically everyone's going to go to a kingdom of glory and saved from eternal damnation. But... The twist is, what do people think? If I were to say to you, hey, everyone's going to be saved, how many of your morals would go up or stay the same? Think of the irony, too, about that, because what if everybody is saved? What if everybody repents and the atonement is uh, you know, effective for all mankind? His issue isn't even about saving. No. That's not his point. His right. point is, do what you want. Right. Isn't that interesting? And there's the twist. Yeah. I want to get you off the path, and so I'm going to say, hey, everyone's going to be saved, therefore, why work so hard? 
and he's going to take a truth and then twist it. And then turn to Alma, uh, Alma 30, Korahor takes a truth and twists it. What's Korahor's truth? Well, his truth is in verse 17 that it's survival, that the law is to survive. Well, there is a place on earth where the law is survival. And that's among the animal kingdom. In the animal kingdom, verse 17 is 100% true. Alma 30, 17 does describe a, a true place. The animal kingdom is a law of survival. Let me make a plug here, too. I think if this is happening in Mesoamerica, this is a highly warlike culture. These cities are wrecking each other. And so I think the people listening to him, it would resonate with them. They would say, oh my gosh, he's right. Because this city just came in and wrecked this city and he's right. And I think in the world today that we're living in, this is where it's so slick. You can take a doctrine of Christ and twist twist it a little bit and you put a little bit of salt in it, a little bit of spice from the modern world where we see it happening and it becomes so tempting to believe. By the way, to you, the listener, I, I... I'm with you. Bryce is going so fast. He's I'm got sorry. all No, this is good. He's got all the antichrist laid out, but I know you at home are like, "Okay, I got to keep up. Now I'm in Alma 30. Now I'm in Alma 31. Now I'm in Jacob 7." So I'm taking pity on your soul. We are going to post in the show notes a graphic so that you can see Sherem, Nehor, Korhor in the verses because Bryce is going so many places. I remember talking about this with him years ago and i'm like wait slow down and i get my pen out and i'm like okay and he's talking about sharing my wait now we're now i'm a 30 because i have pity on your soul we're going to post this graphic and if i was teaching this to my kids or in a gospel doctrine setting i would use this graphic to say here it is because i love what president benson said where he's like the book of mormon is for our day and we're in it we're in the mess and so the lord's like i'm going to show you the antidote and it's right here yeah and he president benson goes on to say that the enemies of christ in the book of mormon are the same as the enemies of christ today so i don't want to derail you we're talking about what might makes right i can do what I want. We're back to Korahor's argument. So we're, Survival. We're back on we're And back so the on twist is, Korahor's twist is that we're animals. Therefore, we live the law of survival. Because the law of survival is true, just not among Heavenly Father's children. So there's the twist. And then Zoram's twist, chapter 31 and 32. Remember the Ramiumptum where they stand up there and they thank God for being their faith? In other words, the twist is God has favorites. And you can take that two ways. You can say God has favorites and I'm one of them. Therefore, I can relax and enjoy and point the finger of scorn. Or you can say, God has favorites and I'll never be one of them. Therefore, why try? And so each one of those takes truth with a twist. So beware of the false ideas. Now, if you think through some of the arguments you're hearing today, they are true doctrines with a twist. So, for example, a lot of people will say, well, if prophets receive revelation, then they should know all truth. They should never make a mistake. Therefore, if a prophet makes a mistake, it's evidence that they they don't receive revelation. Well, that's a true argument with a twist. Or they'll say, I don't need an organization to find God. I can find God out in nature. And that's a true statement. You can find God out in nature, but you do need an organization to receive the ordinances of the gospel. Or God loves all of his kids, so I can do what I want because God doesn't God love me? Yeah, he loves me so much, he would never take my family away from me. Yeah, or it doesn't matter if I keep covenants or make covenants because God knows my heart and he loves me. Right. It's all good. It's always a truth with a twist. So beware of the F word. Beware of those who are going to try to make you feel foolish. 
Number two, beware of the feeling that we're bound down, that we can't think for ourselves, that we're restricted, that religion restricts us. How many people leave the church and say they feel free? I feel free. I'm so happy now. I'm so happy. And they're always pointing out how happy they are, which is interesting because happy people usually don't need to point out that they're happy. They'll always say, I'm free, as if to say the church is restrictive, and now that I've left the church, I'm free. That's the danger. Watch out for those techniques. Watch out for your fool. You're a fool and you're bound down, and then watch out for the counter arguments of truth with a twist. So now let's get into the list of what's the antidote. How do we combat the influence of an antichrist? May I suggest, number one, the first and foremost is what the Zoramites did not do. Go to Alma 31, verses 9 and 10. What did the Zoramites not do? Alma 31, 9, but they had fallen into great errors, for they would not observe to keep the commandments of God and his statutes according to the law of Moses— Neither would they observe the performances of the church. Oh, I love that phrase. They wouldn't observe the performances of the church to continue in prayer and supplication to God daily. So if you think about what are the performances of the church that keep us strengthened, that give us the assurance to move forward, what are the daily performances of the church? What are we supposed to do daily? What are the weekly performances of the church? What are the monthly performances of the church? What are the yearly performances of the church? Those performances of the church are the first line of defense. So ask your children, what's, what are some things we're supposed to do every day? What are we supposed to do every week? What are we supposed to do every month? And are we doing the daily, weekly, monthly, yearly performances of the church? So there's antidote number one, is the performances of the church. Now, antidote number two is to see what all of these prophets, what Jacob does against Sherem, and what Alma does against, well, Gideon and Alma do against Nehor, and then what does Alma do against Korahor? Turn for the sake of time, let's just go to Alma chapter 30, but you're going to find this all throughout these experiences. In Alma chapter 30, notice what Alma says, first in verse 39. There's two parts I want to point out. The first one is in verse 39. Alma 30, 39, I know that there is a God. I know that Christ shall come. But then notice verse 44. What does Alma do? He has evidence. He has a reason. So he says, here's what I know. Here's why I believe it. And then he's going to give the reasons for his belief. So notice in verse 44, he has four evidences that there is a God. Number one, the testimony of these, all these thy brethren. One of the greatest evidences that there is a God is that billions of people on this planet worship a higher power. Billions. Where would billions of people get the idea that there's a God if there wasn't one? Number two, he mentions the holy prophets, eyewitnesses, people who have seen God with their own eyes and that their lives are very credible. Number three, the scriptures. If there is no God, how do you explain the scriptures? Who wrote them? Where did they come from? Why do we love them? Why do we read them? Why do they make such an influence in our lives? Why do seminary students give up a credit hour to go over and study them? Why do we, why do they work? How do you explain the scriptures if if there's no God? 
Number three, all things denote that there is a God. In other words, order. Science tells us that everything increases in randomness and chaos. If you don't put order into your bedroom, what happens? If you don't put order into your yard, what happens? So what we should be seeing when we look around the universe is chaos and disorder. But what we see is incredible order. That goes against scientific principles that that entropy would say everything is increasing in randomness. But what we see is order. There is one substance on earth whose liquid, whose solid is less dense than its liquid. That doesn't happen on earth. Every solid is more dense than a liquid except for one substance. And if this one substance were not that way, life on earth would not be planet. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about water. If the pole... If the earth were tilted any more one way or the other, life on earth would not be possible. We live in the Goldilocks zone where it's perfectly capable of having all of these coincidences, all of this order. There is precise order in the universe, which was Alma's evidence that there is a God. So not just sticking with his evidence, but I would suggest everyone needs to have a testimony based on evidence. So why do you believe Joseph Smith was the prophet? Why do you believe the Book of Mormon is true? Do you have evidence? Do you have a testimony based on evidence? Now, if you do, go back to Jacob. Let's go back a few verses. Jacob chapter 7 is where he contends with Sherem. But go back to chapter 4. Notice verse 6. He searches the prophets he ha- they have many revelations and the spirit of prophecy. Having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken. We search the prophets, we have many revelations, and the spirit of prophecy, and having these witnesses, we obtain a hope, and our faith becometh unshaken. In other words, to have a witness based on evidence— gives you unshakable faith. So there's one major. So uh, 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 observe the daily performances of the church. Number two, have a testimony based on evidence. Number three, notice what all of these people do. Go back to Jacob chapter seven. All of these people, well, let's go to the very end of this story. We can summarize this with the end of the story. Have you ever noticed that if, if someone you love is ever in a car accident and they're thrown from the car because they weren't wearing a seatbelt, what does everyone who loved them do every time they get in a car after that? The lesson they learn from the car accidents is to wear your seatbelt, right? So from that moment on, everyone makes sure they wear their seatbelt. So what is the lesson learned after Sherem? Look at verse 23. What do they specifically overtly do to make sure that problem never comes again? Oh, that's good. That's a good point. They search the scriptures. So in other words, one great antidote is to search the scriptures, to know your doctrine, to be able to recognize the twist. By the way, in that respect, an antichrist actually does the work of God. For example, if I'm a faithful Latter-day Saint and I come against this stuff, if I don't overly entertain it, but I actually go to the scriptures, it will actually cause me to seek out the answer, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Go to how Gideon contends with Nehor. Go to Alma chapter 1, verse 7. Alma chapter 1, verse 7. At the end of the verse, he admonished him, him with 
the words of God. I don't think that means we need to Bible bash, but what we do is we, the Latter-day Saints, need to be versed with the Scriptures. The Scriptures make us unshakable. Um, That's one thing I wanted to mention back in Jacob chapter 7, where he says, by, by the way, if you think about this, there's a verse in Jacob 7 where it says Sharon was very skilled in the, in the art of speaking, and I think sometimes Latter-day Saints feel like we have to be expert in you know, rhetoric, I have to be a master of logic, and you don't. Um, I think that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a big tent, and it's broad enough for those that are highly educated and those that are just, you know, frankly, maybe we're not really masters with our words or with arguing, because at the end of the day, it's a spiritual witness. I really like that, that you read about. Um, they were unshaken because of their experiences with the word, and I've I've had this. There were times when I've actually um, come across some things that were really troubling, and it really shook me until I stopped and I thought, but wait, the spiritual witness that you've had is real and I can't deny it. And so sometimes evidences are just tricky and and we struggle. And we're back to kind of our analogy last time where we talked about you're building a wall and you're holding a rock in your hand and as you're building the wall, there's this hole and I can't fit the rock in and, and we just keep building the wall. And that's okay. We don't have to have the answers to the sherems of our lives. Um, but I think what I like about the Book of Mormon, Bryce, is that in every one of these accounts, there's a foil to sherem, Nehor, and Korahor. Yep. These individuals, they're not going to go unanswered. Or in the words of Elder Maxwell, we're not going to give anybody any uncontested, uncontested slam dunks. We are going to play defense. And every argument has a defensive counterpoint. We may not know it, but it has one. And knowing those, knowing our doctrine is helpful. Yeah, it's dangerous to not know enough. Yeah, let's throw one more of those scriptures in. So if you're kind of listing these antidotes, number one, the daily performance of the church. Just do the things that we're supposed to do, the performances of the church. Number two, have a testimony based on evidence. Make sure the Holy Ghost has spoken to your soul and that you have a witness based on evidence. And you'll see in every one of these cases, they contend with their testimony. And then scriptures. The scriptures make us unshakable. I wanted to throw Alma 31, 5 in to contend against the Zoramites. Alma says, I have the ultimate weapon. So he says in verse 5, Alma 31, 5, as the preaching of the word had a greater tendency to lead the people to do that which is just, yea, it had a more powerful effect on the mind of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened unto them. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word. The way to contend against false ideas in our own head, the way to strengthen ourselves against an antichrist, is to fill our minds with the word of God. Now, let me throw one more in there. Um, If you'll go back to chapter 30, this is an interesting thought that we need to realize about anti-Mormon literature. Go down to verse uh, fifty. Two, where Korahor finally says, I always knew there was a God. I always knew there was a God. So why, Korahor, did you teach this stuff if you knew there was a God? Verse 53 has a beautiful phrase. And I raise this as a warning voice to everyone. I taught them because they were pleasing unto the carnal mind. Anti-Mormon material is pleasing to the carnal mind. Because if there isn't a restoration... I don't have to keep the commandments, and the animal inside my cage can get out. And so any idea that Joseph wasn't a prophet, 
will free the natural man out of his cage. So anti-Mormon teachings are pleasing unto the carnal mind. If you start teaching them, notice that Korahor says, I taught them even until I had much success in, in so much that I verily believed that they were true. I taught them because they were carnally pleasing, and the more I taught them, the more I believed them. Now, notice what Almas, er, he asked to have, to, be, to have the curse lifted. He asked to no longer be deaf and dumb. And Alma says in verse 55, even though, verse 52, he said, I know there's a God. He says in verse 55, if the curse were to be lifted, you'd go right back to teaching these doctrines. In other words, they are so addictive. They are so appealing to the natural man. They have a hold of you that if I lift the curse, you're going to go right back to teaching the falsehood. So brothers and sisters, be careful with anti-Mormon literature. It is addictive. It is pleasing to the natural man. You don't have to get into it. Now, just know, if you want to answer any question, you can. But the more you dive into anti-Mormon literature, the more it becomes pleasing to the natural man. So notice, for example, in verse 29, what did the high priest, this is Alma 30, 29, what did the high priest and the chief judge do when Korohor came around? This is very significant. Yeah, they tied him up and they delivered him into the hands of the officers. And they would not make any reply. You don't have to answer every question. There's this idea among anti-Mormons that if you, if they can trip you up, if they can ask you a question that you can't answer, that it's proof that the gospel's not true. Don't believe that fallacy. You don't have to answer every one of their questions. The chief priest and the high priest, the chief judge and the high priest didn't answer his questions. He just, they just, they wouldn't. And if you want to go back to verse 20, what did the anti-Nephi-Lehi's do? When Korahor went among the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, what did they do? Yeah, same thing. They took him and bound him. They said, well, I don't need this. I don't need this in my life. I don't need to jump into this world. So I testify that there are answers to every one of the points that anti-Mormons bring up, that we can answer each one of their points. But be very careful to jump into that world, because once you jump into anti-Mormon literature, it is pleasing to the natural man. And the more you jump into it and, and study it and teach it, the more you're going to believe it. You got to ask yourself this question. How much time do I want to spend unpacking what was just said? We talked about this in the other podcast. It's so easy to deconstruct, and it takes so much time to build. Uh, we can't answer every meme that somebody put together in 30 seconds or in 140 characters. And so you just have to ask yourself that question. But I'm with Bryce is that you, you can answer these arguments. And a lot of times the logic they're using, if you use it against their own argument, they get wrecked. And so I want to just kind of talk about this a little bit with Korahor. Korahor makes a few assumptions, which I find very interesting. And this is what he says. There's basically uh, well, there, there's about six of them. In verse 13, he says, you can't know what is to come. In verse 15, he says, you can't know of things you can't see. In verse 17, he preaches social Darwinism. And then in 17, he also says, whatever you do is no crime. Everything's relative, just whatever your truth is. In verse 18, he's like, when you're dead, that's it, game over. And then finally in verse 28, he says, God is a being who never has been known, never was, and never will be. Well, if you take verse 28, if you use Korhor's own logic, you can't reconcile verse 28 with verse 13. 
They, they just, they're not compatible. How can you say you don't know what is to come in verse 15? You can't know of things that you can't see and then make the prediction that he's making in verse 28 that says God is a being who never has been known, never was, and never will be. The two are contradictory. The Book of Mormon does illustrate that their arguments lack consistency. And so I really like what Bryce says where they want to make you look like a fool and a lot of times, if you just think about their argument, like the sign where the guy says Jesus and Satan are brothers, well, what do you? What's your point? Yeah, we what, do believe that. What are you getting about? There's lots of different traditions about Satan. We have, for example, in ancient Near Eastern texts, uh, the adversary plays a role on the council. He's a member of the Bene Elohim, and he's actually doing the work of the gods in early texts and early literature. As members of the church, we certainly do believe that he was a person of great authority, and he had a relationship with God, and he fell, he rebelled. In the Enoch literature, he led a rebellion and came down to earth and and caused all kinds of havoc. So there's lots of different traditions about Satan. Or the guy who holds a sign up that says, Mormons wear magic underwear. What's your point? Every single religious tradition has sacred vestments. They all do it. And I hate to sound a little bit snarky, but I think that the Book of Mormon does a really good job of deconstructing these arguments like Bryce is talking about. Good luck, brothers and sisters. This is a major battle. It's something we're all going to deal with. And if the Book of Mormon is any indication of what's coming, of life in the latter days, we are going to deal with the Korahors and the Nehors of our lives. And they're going to have very powerful, convincing arguments. So, Make sure you continue in the performances of the church. Make sure you have a testimony of your own based on evidence that you can look them in the eye and say, I know that Joseph Smith is a prophet. I know that the Book of Mormon is true, and here's my evidence. And then study the scriptures. Great power comes. We become unshakable as we study the scriptures. And then the last one I would say is be careful with anti-Mormon literature. Understand that it is addictive, that it it is pleasing to the natural man. So put limits on yourself to make sure you don't get sucked into that trap. You don't have to answer every one of their questions. You can. There is there's truth out there. But good luck, brothers and sisters. This is a battle that is being waged all around us. Make sure you win the battle when it comes to your door. Um, I testify that the gospel is true, that Jesus has restored his truth on earth. And just like they hated him in his day, they hate his truth today. May we not be surprised by the opposition to what's right, but may we be prepared for their arguments. And with that, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.